I've always been special. I have a grandmother from the Deep South who has always said as much. Growing up, I was always the one who saw things, therefore earning me my special accreditation. It didn't help that I was a spooky kid who got in trouble at daycare for scaring the other kids by holding seances. I grew up in West Texas, El Paso specifically, which just so happens to be full of history. We have a huge old cemetery and a building in which John Wesley Hardin was shot and killed. While I've only been to that cemetery once and merely driven past where he was killed, Historic El Paso has merely played as a background for all of the paranormal activity I've lived through. The house I have lived in for my whole life will be turning 100 years old in 2020. Sprawled out on a corner in a well-respected historical neighborhood, naturally, it's completely haunted. While I'm afraid my family has only added to this energy, most of my stories should be saved for another time. Most of the things I've experienced have become part of everyday life and don't frighten me. But today, I want to tell you about the back hallway. There are two major stories I tell about this hallway, and both center around my younger sister's room, and both are tied together in my mind. I will preemptively apologize for the length of this, but these stories need to be told together. And a quick note on my sister, Riley. She doesn't want to see ghosts. She doesn't want anything supernatural or paranormal to ever happen to her. She is terrified and won't even watch Shaun of the Dead without holding my hand during the zombie moments. Funnily enough, she's wicked accurate with her tarot card readings. We're all our own form of special. The first time I remember seeing a ghost is a story that I am not allowed to talk about. My mother forbade me from ever mentioning it to my sister because the kid would never ever sleep in her room again. Here we go. And Riley? I'm so sorry. I was just coming home from school one day, around the age of six or seven. The back hallway of my house is what leads to the bedrooms, and it dead ends in a fork between a bathroom and my sister's room. At this point in time, my sister wouldn't have been more than a year or two, and for sure wouldn't have been walking. Coming home, my routine was first to put my backpack away in my room before heading back out to the living room to watch TV before dinner. As I rounded the corner to get to the hallway, I noticed it was very cold. El Paso is a desert. It doesn't get very cold, even in the winter. And I remember that it was strange that I was cold in that moment. Fully rounding the corner, I understood why it was so cold. There was a little girl at the end of the hall. She wore a long dress, her hair was long, and had flowers adorning her tresses. What struck me most about her was not that there was a stranger in my house, that everything was monochromatic. Her skin had no color. Her hair, clothing, and accessories were all white or shades of gray. She looked straight out of a black and white movie. We locked eyes. She bolted into my sister's room without a sound. 
Another thing to understand about my house is that my house has a basement that runs under its entirety, and that, along with the hardwood flooring, gives the house a hollow sound. You can't so much as breathe without it being heard on the other side of the house, much less walk or run. I immediately started scream crying, which my severely overdramatic ass was prone to doing, and made my poor mother rush to my side. Through tears, I told her what I saw, and it was clear she didn't believe me. She checked my sister's room, and no one was there. As my family grew in the house, we discovered that not only are there several spirits here, and they will do as they please, but that my sister is a huge scaredy cat and would not be the type of person to handle running dead girls with ease. So my mother put the lockdown on that story. More recently, I had another occurrence in the end of the hallway, and I wasn't thinking far enough ahead to keep from spilling it out to poor Riley the first time I told it. I'm a night owl. Sleep and I rarely see eye to eye, and during high school, my lack of sleep got worse during summer vacation when I wouldn't have a solid schedule. One night, around 3 a.m., I was finishing using the bathroom next to my sister's room. I turned off the light before opening the door. Riley's bedroom door is broken and won't close, but she's a very light sleeper and sensitive to light. And that left my bedroom light as the only thing to illuminate the hallway. As I began to leave the bathroom, my body stopped me. You know how naturally your body stops you before you run into things like tables? It has a natural spatial awareness to not bang your hips into something in front of you. That was what happened, and I understood immediately. But there was literally nothing in front of me. I could see the entire hallway, and there was nothing that should have stopped me. I looked down. At about hip height was a shadow figure hunched over on all fours. It was the vague silhouette of a large person hunched and tense, very, very feral. As I looked at it, my mind racing, it took off like a shot into my sister's room. It was at that moment I remembered my first ghostly encounter which had been locked into the back of my mind because of the restriction placed upon me. I quickly bolted into my own room, and it took all I had not to slam my door shut. I slowly and quietly eased it shut and provided myself the protection my sister lacked. Not knowing what to do, I decided the best thing was to simply go to sleep. I did. I slept. I haven't seen the shadow in the hallway lately, but I have observed it watching over my sister as she slept. That's the part of the story I manage to leave out whenever she's in earshot, because those are the nights I flick on her bedroom light and risk her anger in being woken up. I know that there are several beings in my home, and that this creature and little girl seem to be the two that prefer her room. One day, I hope to truly understand all four of the ghosts in my home, but that seems to be a long time off. For now, I'll just monitor the shadow creature and deal with nearly body slamming it at three in the morning. 
Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. <laughs> I'm, whew, I am Michael Tatum. And this, oh wait, you're supposed to say that. Fuck. And, and, and this. Is Ghoul Intentions. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we got it, we got so it. So nice, so organic. It was super <laughs> That was Rachel's story. Rachel, that was fucking terrifying. That was a really good and story. I feel so bad for Riley. I do. I hope Riley does not listen to this. I suspect Riley does not listen to this show because but Riley sounds like do, she's very, very surprise. frightened of these sorts of things. If you do, happy birthday, Riley! Wait, Merry uh, holidays. Yeah, Merry Ghostmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, that's terrifying. So now don't get mad at your sister though if she flicks on the light. She's just trying to help. Man. Wow. Oof. The body, man, that's so real. The detail of uh, kind of having that that sort of uh, special awareness and stopping because mm -hmm. that it happens. Because there's something there. Oh, but it's oh, better if there's something. Oh. You're like, oh, what is there's? Why am I stopping for? There's nothing there. Then, oh, there's a hunched over person on all fours. Awesome. That's yeah. I would rather okay. just think of it as like a Charlie horse than as an actual horse, right? Running down the hallway, human, or or I do enjoy feral human. That it like ran person. into her sister's room and she was like. Wow, that's a great story. I'm going to go ahead and go to bed now. Bye. I mean, some part of you has to be logical, but like, well, what the fuck am I going to do against a shadow person? Yeah. Well, how do you know? <laughs> At least try. one of us gets out. <laughs> yeah, right? Ooh. Oh. Man. Mm -mm. It was such a good story. Thank you so much. That was really, really good. What's our title for today? Today's title is Born Posthumously. Born posthumously? Why, that's absurd. Posthumously. Posthumously? Posthumously. Posthumously? No. A lot of people are born posthumously. And pre. And pre. <laughs> Just sans humorously. Yeah. Sans humorously. Where does the quote come that from? Is that's from Nietzsche, right? It is Nietzsche. Friedrich it's... Nietzsche. I'm saying yeah. it in the most Nietzsche. I think that's how most people Fred say Nietzsche. It. It's from the Antichrist. Oh, yes. Or Antichrist, depending upon where you are. Um, but yeah. the full line is... It's not a book about the omen, by the way. No. It's much uh, worse. The full line is, some men are born posthumously. What do you suppose Nietzsche meant by that? Uh, that some men are only born after they die. That's true. <laughs> or that maybe, like, or that I think in Nietzsche, who did not have a very, um, shall we say charitable view of humanity right. at large probably thought like most people are just born dead like they're just born dead inside they've got no capacity for living oh that way it makes way more sense but, i was really only applying it to the show yeah well i think he could have meant it but he was a hell of a writer so he would easily he could have easily meant it both ways it was a hell of a lot of things that nietzsche oh yes he was bad boy bad boy mm -hmm. of philosophy sure was mm -hmm. that mustache though oh oh God. He looked like a schnauzer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had a schnauzer when I was a kid. Oh, she was such a dogs. cutie. They're great dogs. No, Nietzsche was Nietzsche was a fascinating thinker. He did a lot of things first. A lot of people were like, you can't think that. That's not a like, thing you're allowed to think. Bitch, and he was I like, but not me... only will I think yeah. it, I will articulate it clearly. And let me tell you another thing. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm, he, and then, mm -hmm. he, and then he would do that. Um. That, so that applies to your story, correct? Yes, my story. Yes, yes, because I'm dealing with a rather famous ghost who, um, it's interesting, I, it's not, 
you know, when we're talking about people that, so here's the thing, I think when you look at the, like the golden age of film stars, of film celebrities, mm-hmm. um, it's fascinating to me to think that people like, say, Charlie Chaplin, uh, Lauren Bacall, uh, you know, Sophia Loren. Yeah, um, they have a certain iconic status that even if you've never seen one of their movies, if if you're a person of a certain generation who's never seen a silent film, you still know who these people were. And uh, Marilyn Monroe, like mm-hmm. you may know, you may not have ever seen Some Like It Hot, but you know who Marilyn Monroe was. You can look at a picture and just know. It's like it's become they've almost yeah. become a kind of you know these these people have almost become larger than life. Um, like just, they're just a shared memory of all mankind now. Right. And uh, I think that happens because back in the day, I think theater, uh, going to, to, to see films back in the old day was a very special experience. It was much more akin to going to see a play mm-hmm. and which we'll get all into this when I kind of get into the story. But I think the reason, um, celebrities now tend to come and go in my experience, at least they, they very few of them have the kind of staying power that the early golden age Hollywood celebrities did. This, the real, mm-hmm. the real titans of the silver screen, um, from the silent age and into the early talkie era. I think that's because now it's all so available. It's all, you can watch it whenever you want on your phone, on, you know, on Netflix, this, that, and the other, which is great. Mm-hmm. But I think because of it, we don't come prepared to retain what we watch. Uh, as much as we would if it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So going to see a movie back in the day uh, was like going to see a play. You were going to see mm-hmm. something you would probably never, ever, ever, ever encounter again. Home video was not right. a thing. If you were growing up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it was you know, a if you were lucky enough to go see a, a motion picture, um, that'd probably be the only time you saw it. Um, cause it was only in town for a few weeks before it would move on and you well, may not have the time or the money to go see it more than once. So people get dressed up. It's why all those movie houses were so opulent because they were big things. It was almost like a house of worship. Yeah. They were usually the first places in town to have AC, um, which is great for business, but they just knew people packed the place out. You couldn't have a room that size in the summer without AC. So these were the first places. And I think it just made the experience. I think audiences came prepared to, hold on to what they saw. Right. And so they walked away with this memory of these giant, you know, three or four story faces yeah, <laughs> of well, yeah. the Marilyn Monroe's and the Bogarts or the, or well, the Chaplin's or the Buster too, Keaton's, Lillian Gish, God, another yeah. one. There's so many. But, but well, when you think about it, there's also the difference in the way that it's covered, right? Like mm-hmm. the media coverage is totally different now. And, you know, it's not new. The, the drama, loving the drama, is nothing new. Yeah, tabloids you know? have been around since, They've, I mean, forever. Y- right. It's just that uh, there were fewer people, but they all had real talents. So it was something that people were connected to. They mm. felt connected to a lot of these celebrities. And the studios cultivated their their personas. Oh, so, yeah. you know, like most like, of the marriages, like Elizabeth Taylor got a lot of flack for all of her marriages, but the majority of them were Planned by the mm-hmm. studio. Mm-hmm. Her first husband was, co- it coincided with um, the the film uh, Father of the Bride, the original Father yes. of the Bride. So they worked out her marriage to the Hilton, which was Paris Hilton's grandfather, I believe. Yeah, and, I think you're right. Yeah, or great uncle, something like that. Some, some relation. Some relation. And um, he was extremely abusive to her. And she ended up getting out of that relationship because he was beating the shit out of her. 
And, you know, later we find out that you know, she's kind of into it, but not to that to, not to that <laughs> level. But that would have been, it needs to be her choice. That's right. Yeah, not, not foisted on her by and her partner. Yeah, I, a lot of those were all set up by the studio. In mm-hmm. fact, the uh, her marriage to, oh, what's her name? The blonde who everybody loved. She got married to her husband. Elizabeth Taylor did, and it was really dramatic. Oh, I um, uh, who, who, who? Not Doris Day. Doors Day, yes. Was it Doris Day? Doris Day's okay, okay. Uh, they, they ended up getting married, and um, it was from their marriage that Elizabeth Taylor and, um, oh, what's his name? The one. Richard Burton. Richard Burton, Burton! Um, yeah, so anyway, their relationship uh, started on the set, and he, they started an affair while she was married to Doris Day's previous husband. Mm-hmm. But that relationship with Doris Day was set up by the studios. She yeah. wasn't really as upset about it as she thought she was. Yeah. And so uh, what happened is she had another relationship that was set up by the studios uh, to Mike. I can't remember his last name right now, <laughs> and I'm not going to try. He was killed in a plane crash, and that's who she had her child with, mm-hmm. her daughter. And she was very upset by that. And Doris Day's husband had comforted her, and she had not had any of that really. Although she adored mm-hmm. Mike, she thought that was her her guy. Yeah. And then when Richard Burton came along, she was like, Oh no, that's, that's a guy that's too. Guy. That's a, so she had two really. Yeah. And my favorite story about this, and we're going to get back to your story in a minute, but I hadn't even started my story. Yet. Um, I, I know. Just... Um, <laughs> but, uh, there's a book about their relationship and, uh, she had married someone else and then they got remarried and then she left and was marrying someone else. And he was married to somebody else. And he sent her a note that said, I want to come home. And he died before she got the note. And when she died, that note was still in her bed. Oh, I'm going to cry. Stop it. I know. They were very drunk a lot and beat the shit out of each other. But there's just something romantic about that. There's just something different about the way they told those stories. Their relationship was was just one giant capoeira. (laughs) 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 If you don't know what that is, guys, listening, that's that's a kind of... Um, that's a kind of Latin dance. I think it's Latin in origin where there's basically, there's a lot of violence in it. There's a lot of imitated, like a, it's, it's basically, it's like a cross between tango and MMA. Mm-hmm. You're not actually fighting, but you choreograph it to make it look like you're fighting. It's yeah. real aggressive and intense. Yeah. Um, it's very, also very controversial. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so all that is to say that I myself am kind of this fucking lampshade. I'm going to take it out every time. Every I try time. to, every time it's right here. Um, all it all that is to say that I am obsessed with the larger than life uh, iconic figures from the entertainment industry, going back as far as like opera. Mm-hmm. Like there was a time a, where before movies became the thing, where being an opera star was the most mm-hmm. was the coolest thing you could possibly be. Right. Like people would just lose their fucking minds if you were coming to town. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just was a thing. And there was a time when um, there was a weird moment in history of entertainment, if you will, where it was opera versus film, where it, where both were kind of competing, uh, at least in, in the sort of, mm. in the upper echelons of the cultural cognizetti. Uh, opera and, and the silver screen were competing for the 
apex of entertainment. Like here's the here's the art the art form to in all art forms because they were both in their way. They both combined all other art forms because mm -hmm. you had opera that combined uh, traditional theater with music and with set design, costumes, ballet, dance, all that stuff, sculpture, uh, all of it. And verse, poetry, all that. And film kind of... And, and so opera was the popular art form. It was the blockbuster film uh, right. of its day for centuries. It was the Marvel centuries. universe. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. It really was. Uh, Spandex and everything. So instead of back in the day, it wouldn't have been like, are you DC or Marvel? It was like, are you... Are you Mozart or are you Donizetti? <laughs> like, right. Are you Verdi or are you Wagner kind of thing? But then film came along and film kind of took its place. But film had a lot of the same, had the same reputation for excess and just larger than life diva personalities. Not mm -hmm. all of them divas, but that, you know, that was the dream. It became the dream factory. Right. And so film and, st and film, you know, a hundred plus years on is now still going very strong and opera's still around, but it's, it's not, it's a shadow of its former self. Right. But sometimes the two converge. Oh. Um, I happen to love opera and film, both. This comes as a surprise to no and one. The... <laughs> so my my thing today that I'm doing a little special on, and it's, it's partly a ghost story, it's partly a love letter to several things that were very important to me growing up and that I still draw a lot of strength from. Oh, yeah. um, but I'm doing my piece, I'm calling it The Phantom of the Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Phantom, the Phantom of the Opera <laughs> is now on <what>? Michael's mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's never far. Uh, what do you know about the Phantom of the Opera? Just as as a cultural force. Not, I mean, I'm talking any any in any form. Most people know the musical. Some people know the various like oh God, dozens of film versions in the book. Yeah. What well, do you What do you know? Of course, the musical. Of course, the musical. Um, and then the movie before with the man with the thousand faces. Uh huh. That's yes. who I'm talking about today. Yeah. Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney. That's yes. right. Yes. Yeah, he was the man with the thousand faces, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. one of his most well known. Probably his. Shows, yeah, yeah. Probably the one, and it kind of started, he, and we'll get into it. But that he did that, so many though. It's hard to know. He did so yeah. many. He was not just. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't know about him. Because he was a pretty private guy, uh, all told. Like in the beginning of you know, when when the tabloids were beginning to understand, oh, there's money to be made by like really, you know, dramatizing dramatizing yeah. what what goes on in the party scene. Selling he stayed the out. Sand. Of it. He stayed the fuck out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and he also came. He came from a theater background. Mm -hmm. uh, vaudeville. He he started in vaudeville, mm -hmm. but he's a fascinating figure. He's also really important to me as an actor because I think he was one of the greatest actors that ever lived. Okay. In a time when actors were still trying to figure out how to sell their performance to an audience but to n but have to do so subtly subtle with subtlety right. that wasn't required or that wasn't possible on stage right well, so because when you're on stage you know yeah. yeah you have to play to the back row when you shrug you can't everyone has to see it and in film, you don't, you can't do that because then it comes off as really hokey. Well, it's like when you're watching YouTube and you see, you know, someone doing a play, you know, somebody's recorded yeah. a stage mm -hmm. play. It mm -hmm. always is a little over the top. When you're to in, be. when you're in the theater, it doesn't appear as over the top as no. when you're watching it on film. No because you are playing to the person in the last row of that theater. You're mm -hmm. making sure that everybody gets that experience, whereas in film... The last row is the front row, everybody, you know. Right. 
And also, imagine any actors making the transition, as a lot of them did, from theater, from vaudeville specifically, to film, which when, when it was silent. Mm-hmm. Vaudeville's the, over the top anyway. Well, vaudeville's over the top. Um, and But there's also, like, when you're doing, like, say, stock theater or Shakespeare, like, theater is about language. Mm-hmm. It's about the words. It's about the voice, primarily. Right. All, all the other elements are kind of there to support the words. You don't have those anymore on on film. So it's for a while there was a whole generation of actors that were having to make a living figuring out this medium of like how do we make this legit because if you watch some of the really early films you could tell they they're rough. They don't they haven't aged well. well especially the because silence. the acting is so over the top because the there was no precedent too. for subtlety. Yeah. In acting. Well, kind of rem- reminds me of my brother when he was in high school. Uh, he had a mime troupe that he was in, and they did two different shows that were Shakespeare. And I was always like, what? So the best way to do Shakespeare is what? To take out all the language? No! Yeah, that's almost... And that's like... <laughs> how the, the the silent films were. They would have the language, and you would read yeah. it, but then they would act it all out, and it was really over And it was really over top, until yeah. Lon Chaney came around. Hmm. And he did a lot. So let's talk about him a little bit. Right. Here's Tell my me lo- about Lon. Here's my love letter to the man of a thousand faces. And, as it turns out, his actual ghost. <gasps> um, so like any self-respecting high school drama nerd of the 90s, I was obsessed with Andrew Lloyd Webber's Fan mm-hmm. of the Opera. I think I was obligated to be. Yeah, uh, I mean, I had the bath towel. <laughs> <laughs> I had everything. I liked a red rose every once in a while. Yeah. I did oh, not have course. a bath towel, though. Now, when so many other pet obsessions from my days spent gracing the boards as a young man have now long since passed into what's probably very richly deserved obscurity, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the opening bars of Phantom still give me the chills. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that pipe organ was like, me, 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 me. I mean, I still just, I still yeah. just kind of... It gets me. Yeah. And uh, Music of the Night, incidentally, became my own personal queer anthem <laughs> at nice. the time. Which is an ode to what Oscar Wilde once famously quipped, the love that dare not speak its name. Nice. Now, mind you, I was the only gay kid um, I knew back in those days. And, I mean, I was biding my time in a small town with more churches than gas stations, so unrequited love was my stock and trade. Basically, I, I fell for a lot of straight guys. <laughs> yeah. um, so, also, you were in high school. <laughs> Right, <laughs> right. So it's only natural that the story of Eric, the arcane genius condemned by ugliness to roam his own private kingdom in the bowels of Paris's famed opera house, never to know the touch of another, moved me to tears. And it still puts a lot That's in my throat. That's probably why all the high school girls loved it so much, because what did high school girls want more than anything? To be loved by a gay man? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't know, in some ways... In some ways, you can interpret it now as, like, Eric the Phantom is, like, the ultimate nice guy. Oh, that's true. Nice guy, air quotes. Um, Now, the musical inspired me to lay my hands on all things Phantom, and at the time, that consisted of Gaston Leroux's original novel, um, one or two literary pastiches that don't really bear remembering. Pastiches? Pastiches. Those are books written in the style of another age, just to kind of, like, like Sherlock Holmes pastiches are all the rage right now. So people that write current Sherlock Holmes books, but they try to imitate the style of Sir Conan Doyle. It's, in other words, it's not a modern style. The literary term is a pastiche. Pastiche. Yeah, it's it's not a parody, because they don't mean to make fun of it. They're but just they kind of do a little bit. In, uninten- unintentionally, right. yeah. That's, that's the best way. Delicious. Also, there was a handful of horror films back in the 90s that were based loosely, and I fucking mean loosely, on the source material. Um, I devoured the original novel in a night. So many 
fluid shirts that we loved in the 90s. Think about it. You got the, the Phantom. You got Interview with a Vampire. Oh you got The Crow. You got, <laughs> like... Where do we find these before Hot Topic? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's when Hot Topic was birthed. Right? It was birthed Pretty out much. of the blousey shirts of the <laughs> 90s. <laughs> I had a Phantom outfit that I I'm, made, that I put okay, together myself. Um, I devoured the original novel in a night, and I later reread it in French, which took so much longer. Of course you fucking did. Um, now, I have to say, the story has aged better than Gaston Leroux's style, which is a little stodgy, but I'm still kind of fond of his attempt to marry the cold eye of detective fiction a la Edgar Allan Poe mm -hmm. with the almost suffocating glamour of high gothic melodrama, which is, if you've never read the novel, that's basically what it is. Like, it, the story is great, and the story, the story has positively mythic dimensions. Like, I think the story holds because it really gets us in, in like a place where we're like, I, you could write it anyway from Sunday and I would love these characters and what they're going through and, f and be fascinated by them. Right. So so the excesses of Leroux's style uh, are very forgivable because the story he happened to stumble upon was just so resonant and still is. Um, so, but of all the dubious <laughs> treasures that my teenage obsession brought me to in the Phantom days, the one to probably leave the most lasting impression, even more so than Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, was the silent 1925 horror masterpiece starring Man of a Thousand Faces, mm -hmm. Lon Chaney. Now, I'm going to say this to all our listeners. If you haven't seen it, please treat yourself. I know it's old, <laughs> and I know that some young people think, well, it's like why they were making movies before they were like, knew how to make them. And it's not true. It's not true. There was so much artistry and cool shit that went into these movies. There are some fucking gems from that era that have aged incredibly well. And that one, his nose alone is Oh my God. Well, we'll it. get into that. Okay, so... <laughs> I mean, personally, if you can watch Lon Chaney's performance as the Phantom and not be moved, I don't want to fucking know you. Um, to see him bring the doomed Eric to life is to watch an actor at the height of his powers play a game at the edge of possibility. The iconic unmasking scene in which Christine, his hostage, creeps up behind him while he's playing the pipe organ and she rips off his disguise. We've all seen it. If you haven't, you can find it on any number of places. Um... That's one of the biggest gut punch fucking scenes ever filmed. It still gets me every time. Yeah. And it gets me because it's not, he, she does it and like we see the camera like sees his face before she does, you yeah. know, because she's behind him and she, he rips it off and his face just kind of erupts uh, out from under the mask and he's just horrified, you know, that, that she's done this and then he swings around. So we see his face for like a good couple of seconds and it's horrifying. Horrifying. And then he turns around and the camera changes angles, or we change angles and we from, see it from her point of view and he's like stepping toward her and he's got his finger outstretched and he's walking oh, yeah. toward her with this accusatory finger and he slowly blurs into a close-up that transfers into something else. Uh, and I don't care, you can, st you can look at that face for, it, it was really ballsy for them to stay on his face as long as they did because one, it, you'd think in theory it would lose effect because now we see it and whatever, but it doesn't. It's still, the longer you look at it, the harder it is to look at yeah. because it's so realistic and that's the thing like it's a his his phantom the eric is really he's hideous he's grotesque but it's so realistically done that mm -hmm. it's not so over the top that you'd think someone was playing a prank on you if you saw that face in starbucks you'd yeah. think oh that poor fucking guy Ooh, yeah right. maybe i'll maybe i'll go somewhere else you know but you wouldn't think what the fuck that's a you know you wouldn't yeah. think it and that's that's and we'll get into that but that was part of cheney's artistry is how good he was at making these monsters believable, both through his performances and through the makeup. Now, um, 
so the unmasking scene deserves its reputation, but there's another one I want to touch on for a second. It's because um, I'm surprised the final moment of the film doesn't get more attention. Um, chased by an angry mob bent on ripping him to shreds, Eric reaches the edge of the Sian with nowhere to go. In a desperate attempt to get in one last barb, he plunges his hand into his coat, pulls out a clenched fist, and raises it as if to throw something, uh, probably an incendiary device or some kind of evil talisman. The mob stops short of him on either side. Eric's reputation as a sorcerer is sufficient to hold them at bay. He flashes a wicked smile. After a moment's impasse, the smile breaks into a full-on cackle. He opens his hand to reveal nothing. <laughs> Embracing his fate, Eric continues to laugh as the mob engulfs him and beats him to death. Mm. Um, there's so much to unpack about his choices as an actor in that scene that like, all I can do is just tell you to fucking watch it. It's mm -hmm. so effective, even, even almost 100 years later. Um, through the grain and, and the weird speed differences in film from back then. Like, it's yeah. still, you're like, oh my God, that's such a human fucking moment where he's like, I'm going to die, but I'm going to get one last fucking joke. Um, it's just, it's it, that moment has stuck with me ever since I saw it when I was 16. So Cheney's reputation as one of America's foremost character actors that was capable of disappearing into roles as diverse as, for example, a Chinese immigrant in the 1922 film Shadow and as Quasimodo in the first mm. film version of Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, is well-earned. Of the ten films he made with the granddaddy of horror cinema, Todd Browning, who, was, who directed uh, the first Bela Lugosi Dracula, one, uh, one of those films has gone down in history as the most sought-after lost film ever made. It's called London After Midnight, in which Cheney plays both an inspector, amateur hypnotist, and a terrifying-looking fellow known only as the man in the beaver hat. The film was lost in the great 1965 MGM vault fire, sadly, but Aww. production photos survive that show a jolly, sunken-eyed atrocity in greatcoat and eponymous hat with two rows of pointed teeth bared through a hellish grin. It is the stuff of nightmares. Also, I'm pretty sure, the inspiration for the Babadook. Ew. What's remarkable is that Cheney did the makeup himself, just as he did for Quasimodo, just as he did for Eric, just as he did for his entire rogues gallery of sympathetic grotesques. Now, Cheney was born on April Fool's Day, 1883, huh. in Colorado Springs to deaf-mute parents Frank H. Cheney and Emma Alice Kennedy. In fact, his grandfather, Jonathan Ralston Kennedy, founded the Colorado School for the Deaf where they met. A childhood spent communicating to his parents in graceful, deliberate gestures, accentuated, I imagine, with dashes of pantomime, shaped Cheney for the stage. He took to vaudeville in 1902 and made a great success, traveling all over the country in stock productions of every stripe. He married singer and fellow vaudevillian Clava Crichton in 1905, and a year later fathered a son, Crichton Tall Cheney, who would go on to follow in his father's footsteps as Lon Cheney Jr., but more on him in a little bit. Uh, the family toured together for four years before settling in California. For reasons no longer known, Cheney was, after all, intensely private. On April 30th, 1913, Cleva burst into the Majestic Theater in downtown Los Angeles, interrupted a rehearsal for the Kolb and Dill variety show Cheney was directing, and attempted suicide oh. by chugging a glass of mercuric chloride. <sighs> Holy shit. Now, miraculously, she survived, but the damage to her throat forced the poor woman into early retirement. Though he successfully sued for divorce himself, Cheney's own stage career never recovered from the scandal. He did what many veteran actors did when the burgeoning film industry began eclipsing vaudeville's appeal. He signed on with Universal. 
Now, in the cutthroat world of Hollywood casting, Cheney's uh, gift with makeup gave him an edge. Slowly but surely, he won larger and larger roles, often playing characters whose macabre appearance stole the show. Studio politics prevented him, though, from pulling a salary reflective of his increasingly A-list status. When Cheney asked for a raise, blustery studio exec William Stistrom barked, You'll never be worth more than $100 a week! Jeez. <laughs> That's when he quit and went contract. Uh, um, not until landing a role in 1918's Riddle Gown did Cheney earn recognition for his talent. Later, his performance as The Frog in George Lone Tucker's The Miracle Man, which grossed $2 million dollars, just like a bazillion in today's money, yeah. um, not only showcased Cheney's profound acting chops, but his supernatural gift as a makeup artist. He was now firmly on the map as America's most wanted character actor. With the exception of beards and mustaches to denote villainy, in the early days of cinema, makeup was a pretty flimsy affair. Departments devoted to it were not a thing. Um, until the mid-twenties, actors were expected to apply their own, yeah. and all they had to go on was dressing room methods from their vaudeville days, which did not take to the big screen all that well, especially as film quality improved. In such a climate, Cheney's artistry made him a fucking legend. He was the whole package. Casting crews knew he'd thrive in any role, even dual ones. In the 1920 film Outside the Law, for example, Cheney plays both a guy who shoots another guy and the guy who gets shot. <laughs> all right. Um, but it was as Eric in The Phantom of the Opera that cemented his place in film history. In an article for Movie Magazine, Cheney once wrote, quote, I wanted to remind people that the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. The misshapen beggar of the streets may have the noblest ideals, end quote. Aww. Ray Bradbury once said of Cheney that he was someone who acted out our psyches. He somehow got into the shadows inside our bodies. He was able to nail down some of our secret fears and put them on screen. The history of Lon Chaney, he says, is the history of unrequited loves. He brings that part of you out into the open because you fear that you're not loved. You fear that you'll never be loved. You fear that there's some part of you that's grotesque that the world will turn away from. Now, in the first years of the tabloid age, Cheney wisely cultivated an air of mystery, living outside, uh, living, uh, uh, living out an otherwise quiet life with his second wife, Hazel, far from the Hollywood scene. His performance as a hardened drill instructor in Tell It to the Marines, however, so endeared him to the U.S. Marine Corps that he became the first actor uh, made an honorary member. Mm. He was also, and this is fascinating, he was also one of the few silent film stars able to confidently navigate the advent of sound. In the 1930 crime melodrama Unholy Three, not only did Cheney play the sinister ventriloquist Professor Echo to perfection, he provided no less than four other distinct voices for the film. Sadly, the man of a thousand faces was diagnosed with lung cancer and died just one month after the film's release. His crypt in the great mausoleum of Forest Lawn Memorial Park is unmarked, as per his wishes. His son, Lon Chaney wow. Jr., went on to play the title character of the 1931 horror classic The Wolfman, and though the look and performance are iconic, they occupy a spot in the horror pantheon arguably created by Chaney's Eric from Phantom. Now, going back to the original source material for a moment. Um, quintessential Frenchman Gaston Leroux turned to writing out of necessity uh, because he'd gambled away a rather substantial inheritance and reporting for a newspaper called L'Echo de Paris was the only occupation apart from Baccarat that seemed to interest him. Uh, he was intimately familiar with the opera house Palais Grandier from his beat as a critic. Are you saying words? Or are you just like... I'm just talking through cake. Burping at us. Um, <laughs> um,
Many of the settings used in his novel are, in fact, real, right down to the subterranean lake, which is still used today to train Paris firefighters. Mm. The prologue of the book claims the story is based on the actual discovery of a skeleton in said lake, a detail Leroux would uh, swear by to his dying day. Now, alas, there are no records confirming this discovery, but ghostly rumors whispered by Palais Grandier chorus members and box managers alike do seem to have been a chief inspiration for the story. Mm. Now, whether Leroux was just a shrewd promoter spinning yarns to sell his book, we'll never know. But the set used to depict the opera house in the Lon Chaney film has a post-production history strangely reminiscent of the Phantom's shenanigans. Ew. We come now to stage 28. Stage 28. Paramount stage 28. Universal. Universal stage 20. For starters, just as box five must never be sold during a performance, this is from the book, um, just for starters, as box five must never be sold during a performance what? on pain of the Phantom's Wrath. Wait, say that again? So in the book, okay. and, and this is also in the, in the play and most movie versions and the musical, box five is the Phantom's box. It's a balcony, uh, it's a seat. Box five. Box five. I was hearing B-A-C-H-S, five. Bo oh, box fifth. Yeah. No, um, no, no, no. Box, box five is the Phantom's box, the and like box. he's got an usher assigned to it and everything, a oh, box okay. manager, and they're not allowed to sell it. And if people do try to, when the chandelier falls, it's partially because they, the the new managers, the opera house, like that's bullshit. There's no ghost. Fuck them, and they sell his box. And when someone else is in it, then like a chandelier comes down, and yeah, that's yeah, okay, that's gotcha. the Phantom's box. So just as Box Five must never be sold during a performance on pain of the Phantom's wrath, Universal's Stage Twenty Eight has stood unchanged for almost a century. That is until it was demolished in two thousand fourteen. But that's a pretty long time considering it was built in nineteen twenty four. Yeah. Now called the Phantom Stage. Ninety in years. Mm-hmm. Called the Phantom Stage in homage, Stage 28 bears the distinction of being the only soundstage named after the film it was used for. Cameraman Charles Van Anger confirmed in a 1973 interview that the name simply stuck during production. In other words, not on account of a ghost, it's only fitting, and it's only fitting because the stage existence itself was legendary. Because bear in mind, Hollywood production stages before 1924 were little more than raised outdoor platforms with a muslin cover to diffuse glare. Many were replaced by glass and wood structures in 1916, designed to shield performers from pro uh, and props from inclement weather, not so much from summer heat. But fully enclosed <laughs> stages didn't pop up on studio lots until the early 1920s. Right. When Universal announced their plans to build one large enough to contain the replica of an opera house, all Hollywood was abuzz. Nothing like this had ever been attempted. Stage 28 was the first large frame steel and concrete stage in Hollywood. I imagine that gave a lot of people work, too. Oh, yeah. Just building of it. Disappointingly, it wasn't maintained for so long out of respect for Lon Chaney's ghost. It was simply a piece of Hollywood history used more or less unaltered for a slew of other films, including Dracula, The Bride of Frankenstein, yes. Psycho, yes. Jurassic Park, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Jurassic Park? <laughs> yeah. Unchanged? Uh-huh. Well, it's a huge studio, so the Opera House only occupies one part of it. Oh. Uh, so... Okay. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, that said, in the near century since bringing the Gaston Loro's uh, novel to life, Stage 28 has given visitors a goodly share of real-life ghost stories many believe care of Lon Chaney himself. Ooh. Now, for decades, people reported seeing a cloaked figure skulking among the original set pieces, which, aside from the, frame, uh, from the famed chandelier, were still intact. Carpenters, electricians, security guards, art directors, set designers, tourists, etc., have all, at one time or another, caught a glimpse of the furtive apparition, 
uh, who, more than few, who more than a few witnesses, lucky enough to get close, insisted bore a strong resemblance to Cheney in phantom makeup. Disembodied uh, footsteps echo through empty corridors late at night. Lights turn off and on of their own accord after security is locked up. Objects disappear and crop up in unusual places. Voices whisper from the darkness. Cheney may not be the only ghost in residence, too. During production of Phantom, an electrician fell to his death from the catwalk and was said to haunt the premises alongside his more famous counterpart. Witnesses going back as far as 1930 claimed a man in early 20th century workman's clothes could be seen ambling soundlessly along the catwalk when no such person was authorized to be on site. He was described as going about his business seemingly unaware people were watching him before he would just turn and vanish into thin air. Now, when the television series The Ghost Whisperer filmed on stage 28... Which we've talked about being uh super haunted. Cast and crew seldom got a moment's peace. A dark, amorphous mass not present while shooting would appear on the dailies or even later in the editing room. Yeah. Actors would feel a cold rush of air wash over them and momentarily forget their lines. Lights would explode with such regularity it began cutting into the budget. Doors would slam as crew members passed by. Cheney himself would be seen milling about in prop in prop storage or foraging through costume racks. At least one actor encountered him waiting for her in the dressing room, becloaked and smiling, before vanishing. Did he have his makeup on? No. No. He oh. was just, yeah. Uh, fortunately, uh, though Stage 28 was torn down to make way for more modern attractions, the Opera House set... Uh, the opera house set from Phantom is still gloriously intact and stored away for future use. Perhaps, wow. some speculate, as part of a dark ride inspired by the film, which would be fucking awesome. That would be so Please cool. get on that Universal. Um, now, if you're troubled by the prospect of Lon Chaney's ghost having nowhere to go after Stage 28's demolition in 2014, you might be relieved to know he frequents another famed Tinseltown spot, an ornate iron bench at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. Hmm. Put there by City Councilman Norris Nelson around 1910 to help offset what he considered to be the preponderance of ugly, ad-covered wooden benches lining the sidewalk, Lon Chaney's Iron Bench got its name for the frequency with which the legendary actor waited on it in the early years of his film career. The bench, you see, had long been the preferred spot for anyone looking to be a day player. Casting agents or their assistants would drive by, motion young hopefuls into their car, and escort them to the set. Chaney followed this hallowed tradition and used the bench as we might use LinkedIn. <laughs> oh. Or as a construction worker might use Home Depot. Right. Yeah. Uh, later, anointed by fame, Cheney remembered his industry roots and often collected would-be extras from the same spot, giving them parts in whatever film he was working Aww. on. Now, after Cheney's death in 1930, pedestrians reported seeing his ghost sitting at the bench alone in broad daylight, as if waiting for a casting agent to take notice. So famous did the bench become for Cheney's spectral presence that when it was mysteri- that when it mysteriously disappeared in 1942, <gasps> taken by either vandals or unscrupulous collectors, Nelson, by then getting on in years, made a stink about it before the city council. His beautiful wrought iron bench had been replaced by the very thing he'd put it there to offset, a stark wooden monstrosity papered with cigarette ads. No self-respecting ghost would sit on such a bench, he railed. (laughs) These are on the records of a goddamn city council meeting, which is awesome. The original bench was never found, but a replica was erected in its place. Cheney seemed to approve. His ghost appears there to this day (gasps) in tastefully understated dress, free of the makeup effects that helped bring his characters to life for generations of wide-eyed moviegoers. Perhaps, having ascended to the heights of fame for disguising himself, the man of a thousand faces now prefers in the afterlife to be remembered for his own. Aww. 
Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. And also sad because he's hunting. But still. I mean, it'd be kind of cool to haunt a place like that and like to be a history. Like, hey, I'm, it's kind of cool. I mean, I mean, if you're going to wait. Think of how many actors in the world that have ever lived that go on to be so famous that they're still known long after the media, the medium they were known for has been, has outgrown. Yeah. Or, or that the industry has outgrown the medium that they made it a splash in. That's very rare. I yeah. mean, when you think of like, Cheney was one of thousands of actors in those years that no right. one remembers. And he's the one like that we he's like one. not only remember like his, uh, what's cool too, a little side note. So Lon Chaney Jr. who played the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's of course an iconic image. Uh, when Universal like put out stamps, like commemorative stamps, uh, there was Lon Chaney's The Phantom right next mm -hmm. to Lon Chaney Jr.'s The Wolfman Aww. and Frankenstein and Dracula all had their stamps together. And the, I think the creature of the Black Lagoon. 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 Why can't Aww. I say Lagoon? Nice. Crab Rangoons. Um, Delicious. Yeah. That was awesome, Michael. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Dale Lon Chaney. Yeah. I think there was, a there was also a famous actress who saw him, who worked on set with him when she was really young. And she was like, that's how to act. Okay, that's how you do this. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, it was either Lana Turner or it was Marlena Dietrich. It was one of those very famous iconic actresses that was yeah. like, oh, you, really? She worked with Chaney on the set of one of his earlier films. And she was like, fuck, he's brilliant. It's like, is it Betty Davis with Peg Betty Hustle? Davis with Peg Entwistle. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, mm, so mm, crazy. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. I need a beverage. I do too. Then I've got a story for you. I can't wait. Okay, hold on. And we're back. <laughs> All right. So I love we feel this, we feel the need to like act like there's a commercial. Break I know. When there's none. Well, because not for at them. This there's moment. no break. It's That's just right. it's it's continuous. But maybe there might be. I don't know. There might be. It's good. Whenever like, ads like a start intermission coming. music. That's right. Okay, right so <laughs> first part of my story. Is we it's must, a story in parts. It is. We must talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, yeah. Lorraine passed away. She did. She did. So the Warrens investigated over 10,000 cases of paranormal activity in their lifetime with careers spanning over 65 years. That's Some of those cases... in time. I know. Some of the cases include The Haunting That the Conjuring Was Based Off Of, yep, yep. Amityville, mm -hmm. The Demon Murder, Werewolf, Smurl Family, Stepney Cemetery, Borley Church, Union Cemetery, and The Haunting of Connecticut, or The Haunting in Connecticut, sorry. <laughs> the whole state. The whole, just, it really is. I mean, Lorraine Warren has said that there's not a city in Connecticut that's not haunted. Oh, yeah. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never been there, but I just assume. Um, it's small, so it makes sense. Ed Warren. Don't want to leave. It's <laughs> right? so nice. Um, Ed Warren was a famous self-taught demonologist and paranormal investigator with his wife, Lorraine Warren. Lorraine was a psychic, clairvoyant, and a light trance medium. She was also very devoted to her Catholic faith and said her faith was both her protection and her drive. They met, I believe, when she was 15 or 16. She was pretty young. Yeah. Um, she had had these experiences where she would see light and she would see aura and, like, she saw an aura around her favorite nun, who was her teacher, and she went up and she told her, your light is brighter than than Mother Superior's. And the nun was like, you should go to the chapel and pray about it so Give that goes shot. away. <laughs> yeah. Give me your hand. Slap! No, no more lights. Yeah. Um, so, and she kept it to herself. She tried to pray it away because she didn't want to be different, and it never, of course, went away. And she didn't even tell Ed about it when they first met. And then, finally, he was like, there is something different about you. 
And for him, he grew up in a very haunted house. He had all of these experiences, and he just wanted to know if other people had these mm. haunted houses. Okay. He like had these experiences that he had. So he they when they were in the they first got together, they first got married, he decided, you know, he saw painting and stuff and he was he could paint. Mm. So he started painting uh, just little pictures of different things and they would go to the beach and sell them and they'd make, you know, th- two or three dollars. maybe five off of a painting and you know when hot dogs were 10 cents and a gallon of gas was 18 cents yeah like it was really easy yeah they did really well so what he started doing was they would go to uh, houses that he knew were haunted Mm. and he would paint the exterior of the house and Lorraine was so charming he would give her the painting and send her to go up to the house and it would be the house with like ghosts and stuff coming out of it and she would say he painted this for you and it would kind of open the door for conversations about the ghosts and stuff like that. And he really just wanted to know if these other people had the same experience oh, as he had. And that's kind what of what cool, got them like, into it. entree into like, hey, there's your house on it? Yeah. It was through painting. That's, Isn't that that's cool? so cool. Yeah. Small little, little fact, but, huh. and of course then they went on to, he, you know, they read a lot. He was self-taught demonologist, all yeah, of this different yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, that, you know, there was a lot of controversy around them, too. Sure. But uh, Ed passed away in 2006. Yeah. Um, he had a heart attack. Mm. So it was pretty unexpected. And unfortunately and sadly, Lorraine passed away just a few weeks ago on April 18th. Mm. She was in her 90s. Yeah, she was both, an old girl. You know, she, she lived she, a long... She lived a long... Yeah. Life well lived. That's right. So in honor of Lorraine Warren, yeah. and Ed as well... And Ed... I am going to tell the real story <gasps> of Annabelle the doll. Yes. Are you ready? I'm so <laughs> fucking ready. I'm so ready that I said yes in my demon voice. I didn't yeah. even mean to. I was like, yes. Okay, first of all, <laughs> if you've seen the movie, Annabelle, forget about that. Yeah, I have seen it, and yeah. I did forget. Good. Uh, I forget everything <laughs> you, you saw even about have it. You to tell me. <laughs> this is, what I'm going to tell you is the real shit. Okay. Annabelle is not, as was shown in the film, a porcelain doll, which no. you knew. I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, def- porcelain dolls are terrifying. I fucking hate them. But. But gigantic headed raggedy hand dolls. That's what she was. Are even more terrifying, yeah. if you ask me. Well, this particular one is. Fabric face, red yarn for hair. She was a raggedy hand doll. And she is a raggedy hand doll. Um, with the movie, Lorraine Warren didn't mind that it strayed from the story so much because the point was to be careful of inviting something in. Right, right. right. So they were okay with that. It's just in loosely based is a loose <laughs> is loosely based on the truth. You got to figure right. like in, in everyone has to know like they're going to fuck up my story somehow and it just gives me it just creates a gap that I can fill with opportunities to tell the story. Like mm-hmm. it's still however close or far the movie may be from the actual experience, it just gives you an opportunity to promote the actual story. The actual story. So I, you know. Yeah. So here's the actual story. She had a story. good attitude about it. That's right. Uh, the real life Annabelle story began in 1970. Mm-hmm. Donna, a nursing student preparing to graduate, was given a doll by her mother as a birthday present. The doll was an antique Raggedy Ann doll that uh, her mom had found in a hobby store. At the time, Donna lived in a tiny apartment with her roommate, Angie, who was also a nurse. Donna placed the doll on her bed as a decoration and left it there without giving it a second thought. However, within days, 
Both Donna and Angie noticed that there appeared to be something very strange and very creepy about the doll. It mysteriously seemed to move about the house, relatively small movements at first, such as a change in position, but as time passed, the movement became more noticeable. Donna and Angie would come home to find the doll in a completely different room. Sometimes the doll would be found with its legs crossed or its arms folded, and other times it would be found upright, standing on its feet. Mm-mm. Nope. Thank All you by know. its fucking it's self. No. Yeah. All by <laughs> I want you to be over there <laughs> and all you can by be yourself. All by yourself. <laughs> In another fucking hot Forevermore! Um, just toss that shit in the bin at Goodwill. Ooh, yeah. On several occasions, Donna left the doll on the couch before leaving to work, leaving for work, only to return to find the doll back in her room on the bed with her bedroom door closed. How many times would that have to happen for you to take a match to the goddamn thing? I would never have a doll on my bed. Fuck that shit to okay. begin with. It would take me once to be like, nope, <laughs> yeah. that's going. Yeah. Bye. This has got to go. I'd be like, I'm going to give this as a present to someone I don't like very that's much. That's right. This <laughs> fucking creepy ass doll not only moved, but seemed to be able to write as well. What? About a month into their experiences, Donna and Angie began to find messages on parchment paper that read, Help us and help Lou. We'll get into who Lou is in a minute. The handwriting looked as if it had been been written by a small child. Incidentally... Or a doll without fingers. Right. But... That's terrifying. They didn't have parchment paper in their house. Yeah, who has parchment paper in their fucking house? They didn't. So where did the fucking parchment paper come from? What the, uh, they had what? no idea where it was coming from, and not to mention, like, they had no idea what anything was going on. So one night... <laughs> this is insane. I know. It's details like that that sell me, because no one would try to pass that off as the truth right. unless fucking it was. parchment paper? What? Mm-hmm. So one night, Donna came home to find the doll had moved again. This time, it was on her bed. Now, this was pretty typical of the doll, but for some reason, she knew this time something was different. Something was wrong. Um. A sense of fear came over her when she inspected the doll and saw what looked like blood drops on the back of its hands and its chest. Uh. Seemingly from nowhere, a liquid red substance appeared on the doll. No. No. It's like I had a... Michael silent screamed. I was... I just silent screamed. (laughs) Do you ever get so nervous that you yawn? Yeah. This just happened to me. I was like, no! Their their doll has stigmata. Yeah. The way he threw his head back and it was like a yawn, but it was a silent scream and then he shook his head. It was pretty amazing. I'm sorry you guys missed that up. It was really just good to imagine it. Yeah. It's... That's... So, (sighs) what the girls had thought before then that is maybe somebody, there was an intruder coming in trying to freak him out with a doll, writing stuff, like bringing parchment paper, doing all of this shit. But after the blood shit, like, they decided, yeah. (laughs) Just the blood, no shit. The blood, no shit. Yeah, I don't, there's no shit. There's no shit, as far as I know. Um, (laughs) That'd be really gross, gross. They realized at that point that they were terrified and decided it was time to get some help. So they contacted a medium who performed a seance to help them figure out what the fuck was going on. During the seance, they were introduced to the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. She had lived a happy life, 
But tragically, when she was seven, her lifeless body was found in the field where the apartment complex would later be built. The spirit of Annabelle related to the medium that she felt comfort with Donna and Angie and wanted to, quote, stay with them and be loved. Naturally, both women felt compassion for Annabelle and her story. It's a trap. So Donna gave her permission. It's a fucking trap. To inhibit the doll... And stay with them. Inhibit the doll. Meaning like... Inhabit the doll. Oh, inhabit. I was like, inhibit the doll. Yeah, I said inhibit, but I meant inhabit. I just... like, that's cool. You can stay in my doll and continue like leaving weird messages on pieces of paper we don't keep around the house and bleed from like your head You can stay, just no more bleeding. Okay? Okay, thanks, bye. You can stay, just like maybe if you're going to... Maybe help out around the house a little bit. (laughs) A little bit. If you're going to walk around, maybe pick up some trash. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they were soon to find out, however, that Annabelle was not who she appeared to be. This was no ordinary case and definitely no ordinary doll. It wasn't Raggedy Ann. She was really windy. <laughs> and she was there trying to sell hamburgers. No! Uh, so you remember Lou? Uh-huh. Let's talk about Lou. Oh, Lou. He was a good and true friend of Donna and Angie. This is what I'm saying. I love that you're it's He's past tense. Good I don't think and Lou's true gonna friend. end up well. Well, at the time he was it was good he was a good and, and true friend. Uh, he had never liked the doll and on several occasions warned Donna that the doll was evil and she needed to get rid of it. Evil evil I say. Good and true friend. You're looking at me. You were looking at me with a look that says, get rid of your fucking dolls, Tatum. I can't imagine I why I would look at one you. One like doll. That. I have one doll. So did Donna and Angie. Donna. Fair. (laughs) Okay. Donna, of course, at this point, thought it was just a little girl. So she ignored Lou's requests. One night, Lou awoke from a deep sleep and in a panic. At the time, I believe he was sleeping on their couch. He had been suffering from reoccurring nightmares, and he'd had yet another one. Only this time... Something seemed different. Much like sleep paralysis, which we've discussed, he felt as though he was awake, but he couldn't move. He looked around the room, but didn't see anything out of the ordinary until he looked down at his feet. What what can you possibly imagine poor Lou saw? At his feet while he was laying down. Annabelle. He Standing did. there with a, with, a, with a diet cola and a <laughs> charcuterie board. That would be amazing. <laughs> he did see the fucking doll. <laughs> Annabelle began to slowly glide up his leg, oh. move over his chest, and then it fucking stopped. Within seconds, though, the doll was strangling him. Paralyzed and gasping for breath, Lou, at the point of asphyxiation, blacked out. When he woke up the next morning, he knew it wasn't a dream. He became determined to rid himself of the doll and whatever spirit had possessed it. Unfortunately, the doll was not done with Lou. Oh, poor Lou. The next day, Lou and Angie were preparing for a road trip and reading over maps alone in their in uh, the apartment. The place seemed eerily quiet. Suddenly, they both heard rustling sounds coming from Donna's room. 
Thinking someone had possibly broken into the apartment, Lou quietly made his way to the bedroom door to find out who was there. He waited for the noises to stop, went into the room, and turned on the light. But the room was empty, except for Annabelle, who had been tossed on the floor in the corner. Lou looked over to the room for a forced entry, but nothing was out of place. When he got close to the doll, though, he had the distinct impression that somebody was standing behind him. Mm-hmm. He spun around, ready to fight, but nobody was there. Oof. At that point, he grabbed his chest, doubled over in pain, and realized his shirt was covered in blood. What? When he opened his shirt, he saw what looked to be seven distinct claw marks, Mm-mm. three vertically and four horizontally. They were bleeding, but they felt like burns. Half of the marks would be gone by the next day, and the remaining wounds would fully disappear by day two. What did Annabelle have against Lou? Right? I mean, well, Lou he was wanted to get rid of her. Shit, <laughs> shit about her, he's, you know. She, yeah, he was all about that shit talking, so. So she's like, look. This fucking place ain't big enough for the boast of Scratchy, boasts. scratch, scratch, like, scratch. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You want me to fuck me? Fuck you. <laughs> That's right. That's what she said. <laughs> At that point, Donna was like, yeah, okay, maybe this bitch isn't who she says she is. Um, that's not a literal quote. That's my assumption of what she says. <laughs> <laughs> this bitch. This bitch over here. Um, <laughs> they decided they need to find a better expert than the medium. So they contacted an Episcopal priest named Father Hegan or Hagen. Father Hegan got the distinct impression the situation was above his pay grade, so he contacted Father Cook, a higher authority in the church. And Father Cook was like, we need the Warrens. So he contacted the Warrens. The Warrens immediately took an interest in the case, and after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, concluded that the doll itself was not possessed, but manipulated by an inhuman presence. Inhuman presence, according to the Warrens, is demon, basically. Yeah, demon. Yeah, yeah it's true. It um, also, she the seance thing, she was totally against seances. Yeah, she's she never very, she's like, no, don't, don't fucking give them. Any Ouija boards, seances, yeah. mediums, anything like that. Even though she was a medium, she was like, don't do it. So, according to the Warrens, spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object, though, and this is what occurred with Annabelle. Some spirit was manipulating the doll to create the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. However, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. Yikes. (laughs) So the demon had like a doll. And it was just practicing with the doll before it moved on to it was, a real flesh and blood person. Yeah. It was trying to get attention with the doll so that it could move on, to, so it could get the trust of oh. a person, right? Oh. They believed a spirit, or in this case, an inhuman demonic spirit, was essentially in the infestation stage of the phenomenon. It first began moving the doll around the apartment by means of teleportation to arouse the occupant's curiosity in hopes that they would give it recognition, which, of course, they fucking did. God damn it, Jamie. Are we fucking this all up? Are we just inviting a bunch of demons into our homes? No, not us. Then, (laughs) Because we do all this. No, not with dolls. Not with dolls. I do. Well, you keep that in your fucking house. (laughs) Not over here. 
Okay, so then, predictably, they made the mistake of bringing the medium into the apartment to communicate with it. Um, let's see. Uh, Lorraine Warren thought all of that shit um, encouraged demon activity because, of course, everything was demons then. The medium, who did not know what she was dealing with, allowed the inhuman spirit to prey on the girl's emotional vulnerabilities by pretending to be a rather harmless lost young girl. When Donna gave it permission to haunt the apartment, it only increased the spirit's power. Since demons are negative spirits, it set about causing patently negative phenomena to occur. It aroused fear through the weird movements of the doll, the materialization of disturbing handwritten notes, the symbolic drops of blood on the doll, and ultimately through attacking Lou and leaving behind the symbolic mark of the beast. Three scratches and three scratch, three scratches and four scratches, so it's seven. Yeah, seven. Right. Right. In their opinion, the next stage of the infestation phenomenon would have been complete human possession. Mm -hmm. Had these experiences lasted another two or three more weeks, the spirit would have completely possessed, if not harmed or killed, one or all of the occupants of the house. At the conclusion of the investigation, the Warrens felt it appropriate to have a recitation of exorcism blessing by Father Cook to cleanse the apartment. At Donna's request, and as a further precaution against the phenomena ever occurring in the home again, the Warrens took the big rag doll along with them when they left. I just think of the demon, like, sitting there, like, they need time to possess, fully possess a person, right? Mm -hmm. And I just feel like, is it, for a demon, is it like us when we're trying to, like, <sighs> update one of the apps on our phones? Mm. Like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, just, right. just watching that bar. <laughs> Go across. Okay, eighty percent, eighty percent. Almost, Fuck, almost. Oh, and then the Warrens come in and they're like, "No, son of a bitch." Fuck. Yeah. So upon leaving, Ed placed the doll in the back seat and agreed he would not take the interstate in the event the inhuman spirit still resided within the doll. He wouldn't want to go too fast. Wanted to be safe, right? Mm. His suspicions proved to be accurate when the Warrens felt themselves almost immediately the object of a vicious hatred. Then, at each dangerous curve, the car would swerve and stall, causing the power steering and brakes to fail. Repeatedly, the car verged into oncoming traffic. Ed reached into the back seat, into his black bag, and took out a vial of holy water and doused the doll, making the sign of the cross over it. The disturbances stopped immediately, and the Warrens arrived safely home. At their house, Ed sat the doll in a chair next to his desk. The doll levitated a number of times in the beginning, then seemed to fall inert. During the following weeks, however, it began showing up in various rooms of the house. When the Warrens were away and had the doll locked up in the outer office building, they would return to find it sitting comfortably upstairs in Ed's easy chair. The doll also showed a hatred for clergymen who came to the house. How, you may ask? Mm. Well, in one instance... They just roasted them. Just <laughs> caught them on fire, no. Um, in one instance, Father Jason Bradford, a Catholic exorcist, came to the house. Upon seeing the doll seated in the chair, he picked it up and said, You're just a rag doll, Annabelle. Annabelle, you can't hurt anyone. And tossed the doll back in the chair. At that point, Ed said, That's one thing you better not say. Too late, Ed. You should have said that first. <laughs> Upon leaving an hour later, Lorraine pleaded to the priest to please be careful driving and to call her when he got home. Lorraine had a feeling something bad would happen to him, but the priest had no choice. He had to leave. A few hours later, Father Jason called Lorraine and explained that his brakes had failed as he entered a busy, a busy intersection. He was involved in a near-fatal accident that destroyed his vehicle. 
This was just one of many such events that occurred over the next few years. The Warrens had a special case built for Annabelle inside the Occult Museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Since the case was built, Annabelle no longer seems to be able to move about, but she is thought to be responsible for the death of a young man who came to the museum on motorcycle with his girlfriend. The young man, after hearing Ed's account of the doll, defiantly went up and began to bang on the case, insisting that if the doll can put scratches on people, then he wanted to also be scratched. Dumbass. Yeah. Well, he was riding a motorcycle, so he clearly didn't value his life all that much. Right. Ed politely told the man he needed to leave, and the young man and his girlfriend were escorted out of the house. On the way home, The young man and his girlfriend were laughing and making fun of the doll when he lost control of his motorcycle and went head-on into a tree. The young man was killed instantly, but his girlfriend survived and was hospitalized for over a year. When they asked what happened, the young woman explained that they were laughing about the doll when they lost control of the motorcycle. The Warrens have received loads of criticism from skeptics throughout their career, but since this story is in honor of Lorraine... We're going to take their word for it this time, and yes. we'll research the skeptics another. Yeah. We'll give the skeptics their own day. That's right. But so, that's, uh, ooh, I love that haunted dolls. That is the real story. I love haunted dolls. Of Annabelle. Oh, what a creepy, what a creepy, oh, I didn't know that, that a guy actually died. Yeah. Oh. And that was after she was in a box. Well, like I said, though, he was, he was on a motorcycle, so it was only a matter of fucking time. Right. Well, it Maybe. makes you wonder, did this doll, was it? You know, was it attached to the doll the whole time? Was it, did it attach itself to the doll at the antique store where the, you know, or the hobby store where the mother bought it? You know, where like, is this something they do where they have to be like they, the demon's floating around going, that doll, that someone's going to like good, that doll. That's a good way to get into someone's like life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to attach to this doll and then that's going to, it's going to be great. And then, uh, which makes sense if, if, you know, if you're a spirit or a demon, whatever, floating around and you're bored and you want to, like, you know, be acknowledged, then, and you can, you have the ability to attach yourself to a toy, odds are pretty good you're going to, like, you know, end up having a relationship with whoever the toy belongs to, because kids, like, I mean, if their toy comes to life, they're going to be like, cool, cool, I'll play with it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, it makes sense. Like, it, it makes sense, like, rather than, say, possessing your hairbrush. Because you, as an adult, if you go to brush your hair and your brush starts, like, levitating on its own, you're not going to be dazzled or enchanted by that. You're going to fucking throw the goddamn brush away. Right. Uh, but a child would be like, that's my friend. You know, yeah. the doll's my friend. So, but maybe something about taking possession of the doll. Of course, I'm just talking out of my ass here. But maybe something about taking possession, or, or not possession, but, you know, attaching yourself to the doll limits your ability. And now, like, the demon's, like, stuck with the doll because the plan didn't play out. It's like, fuck, right. I, I got, it's like, I took it's this inhibiting gamble. The, no. I took this. I took this gamble with this doll, but I it's didn't. It's inhabiting didn't... the doll, and the doll is inhibiting the demon. Right. Ooh. Mm. Well, and I feel like, I don't know, like the whole, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but the whole demon thing, I just feel like they're not as common as people want them to be. There are, I think spirits are more common, and if there is an asshole in life, it's probably well, an asshole in, in death. In, in pagan times, uh, and sometimes now, there's the common belief is that they're just spirits. They're just yeah. spirits, whether they came, they're originally living people, or whether they've always been spirits, or whatever, we don't know, and that they're utterly ambiguous. They can be bad, they can be good, depending on their mood and the context they're in. And, um, like, so, uh, demons, in fact, in ancient Greece, ancient, ancient Greece, demons were considered, uh, they were the equivalent of, an, of a guardian angel. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, they weren't, but they weren't there, but they, 
it's more ambivalent than that. They weren't necessarily there to protect you. They were there to usher you to your fate, your destiny, right. whatever that was. Yeah. Um, so you, it's possible to have a good relationship with your demon. Uh, according to the ancient Greeks, this all comes from Socrates. Um, it's possible to have a good relationship with your demon if, like, you're on, you know, if you're on the right path, your demon's, mm -hmm. like, kind of, you know, things are working out for you because right. your demon's making sure, like, oh, cool, you're where you should be, so I'm going to be, like, your bouncer. <laughs> right. Uh, your, 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 your bodyguard, your, you know, your voice of encouragement or whatever, or the one, or your voice of inspiration, your muse. But if you're on the wrong path and the demon's, like, you know, going to give you shit until right. you're on the right path. And if you if you stubbornly refuse to get on the right path, that demon's going to be your worst fucking enemy. Right. What's the thinking? It was daemon. It wasn't... Demon was yeah, a, -A, a, a later... Yeah, D-A-E-M-O-N. Yeah, -E yeah, but demon is a, is a, is a, um, a corruption of that word. Right. And it was just later thought that demons... And demons have a role to play in other uh, uh, non-Western religious practices. Where they're just considered like, you know... Sometimes malevolent, but usually just completely non-human spirits that couldn't fucking care less about people. Right. If we get in their way, then they're like, yeah, fuck you, get I can do so. Way. But but they don't right. necessarily seek us out. And like the guy I was telling you about in, in the episode we did about the, the Cottingly fairies, Lethbridge thought of um, the energies attached to a place were the result of tragedy happening there. But what came first, the chicken or the egg, he couldn't say. But like these these spirits attached to these sites where there was a lot of bad energy or a lot right. of like cumulatively bad energy that it yeah. like whatever well, and so and that that energy could attach itself to people and cause things to happen mm -hmm. well and you also have you know any other kind of like the idea of a land spirit the idea of mm -hmm. you know any, any there are a lot of spirits that are i believe that are not that have never been human yeah but that doesn't necessarily mean it's just demons and angels i'm not saying whatever is happening with annabelle is not a demon it seems pretty dark and creepy and it definitely seems like a spirit that has a has a dark side. It does have a dark that side. Definitely, it doesn't yeah. uh, issue it's, the it's idea. It's up to no good. Is what violence. it is. But maybe, but maybe the spirit of Annabelle just need just just hasn't found the right relationship yet. That's true. <laughs> We've seems, all been our worst selves in a bad relationship. It just needs to go to therapy and set some boundaries. <laughs> That'll really. Really help it out. Like Robert the Doll is a great example. I think Robert the Doll mm -hmm. is a fascinating. Well, I'll do that story sometime. Yeah, I'm, you should. I'm because I think Robert the Doll. A lot of you know the skeptics say that a lot of this story and some other stories, like the Twilight Zone doll, mm -hmm. which is why I, probably why I have a fear of dolls. Um, Whatever. That they it's came Goosebumps. from. <laughs> Goosebumps was a little after our time, though. A little bit, but yeah, a little bit. It was Twilight Zone. Uh, I didn't really mm -hmm. read Goosebumps until I was reading it with Jean Luc. Um, but Just the old Anthony Hopkins movie called Magic, where he plays a ventriloquist and his dummy is possessed. Oh no! It's a young Anthony Hopkins, and it's it's worth seeing because of his performance. Yeah. Uh, but it's not. I mean, it's it's not a great fl film. I wouldn't say, well film. I don't think it's bad or good. It's somewhere in between. It's it's a demon of a film. All right. Well, there, <laughs> we go. there we go. Um, but yeah, there's just so much, you know, in that when it comes to that, but. Uh, but yeah, they're Robert the Doll and um, and that uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah, they believe the skeptics believe inspired the story, but it it's definitely creepy. It is creepy, and they 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 touch on it a little bit in The Conjuring, but it doesn't go into that much detail. Well, just because I mean, so the doll I have is this really cool tall witch. She's really she kind of looks like Maleficent, and I got her for Halloween, uh, and I just decided to keep her up because she's so fabulous, and. Um, 
and I have her like on one side of the couch. And when our friend Devin comes over and he uh, stays with us, he sleeps on the couch and he hates that doll. <laughs> uh-huh. I get it. But he's like, he's like, God damn it. Now that it's here. I'm like, do you want me to move it? He's like, no, because now I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to worry about waking up and seeing her there anyway. Yeah. So if she's gone, it's worse. And if she's here, like, he's like, either way, I'm going to either wake up if she's here and I wake up and she's not there. I'm going to freak out. If you move her and I wake up and she's back where you, you know, there, yeah. I'm still going to freak out. So I'm just going to just put fucking put on my, my face mask <laughs> and I'm just going to pretend like I never saw it. Yeah. But I find her to be a very helpful Well, that's great for presence. you. That and, and the picture of Robert the doll that I have. That's right. That yeah. I asked That's too, for. too many dolls. Well, one's just a picture for me. of a doll. Still too, too many. But I've been, I've seen Robert the doll twice in person and it's a, it's quite an experience. Yeah, first time, been. the first time it was... We were by ourselves, and it was during the day, right as the museum, the Martello, the East Martello was about to close, the, the East Martello was about to close, so we had the place to ourselves, and the, the curator, or whoever was, took our tickets, was like, oh yeah, Robert's over there, and we just want to see that, and she was like, yeah, yeah, he does some stuff, and you know, just be respectful, and ask if you want to take a picture, and we did, and it was kind of cool, you could kind of, you know, we were keyed up about it. Right, uh, so, you keyed up. Uh, yeah. Being in Key West. Uh, thank you for getting that. Uh -huh. um, I didn't even mean to make that pun. <laughs> uh, it's instinct, and <laughs> but we saw him in daylight with just we we were the only people in the museum besides the curator, and it just felt interesting. It felt weird. It felt like we weren't alone. And another time, I went. We went uh, the next year or the year, a couple of years later, and we went at night. Um, when if you go on a ghost tour, they actually take you the back door of the East mm -hmm. Martello right, uh, yeah. or Martello. I may be saying it wrong. And uh, into Robert's room. He has his own little room. And you go in there, and that's, that's the only part of the museum that's open after dark for the ghost tour specifically. And you yeah. go in there and with, with a group of people, and they give you the little EKG readers mm. or whatever, and they go crazy. EMF detectors? EMF, that's the yeah. one, not EKG. Right. Yeah, you, you go in there with medical equipment. Heart. and Yeah, uh, and yeah. then you take everybody's blood pressure. Yeah. But it's really weird to see the, the, the shrine of... Uh, letters people have written to Robert yeah. over the years because they there's so many that they have to kind of put them in rotation so they just as new letters come in they take old ones down and a lot of them are like oh Robert it's so cool to see you but a lot of them are like I am so sorry I was mean to you and yelled at you or took a picture without your permission because goddamn my life fell apart after I left wow. so I'm just saying be careful but I find Robert to be very helpful well, good. I'm, I'm very nice. so glad for you. If he's evil, then I guess our, our, our evils just dovetail perfectly. Well, <laughs> great, great. I'm so happy that that's happening to you. <laughs> Is that doll the reason <laughs> you don't like being over at our place after dark? No, I don't mind being over at okay. place after dark. I was going to say, I'm like, because I guess you have, I think about it, you don't really come over to our place after dark very often. It's parking. That's why. Oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so parking. It's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> parking sucks oh my god well thank you for telling us the story of no Annabelle problem. I am fascinated by that and thank you for your Lon Chaney story and thank you everybody for listening to yes. Google Intentions alive um, and otherwise alive and otherwise give us you know those those good reviews and subscribe mm. if you haven't subscribed and submit go to, them stories submit your stories on the website GoolIntentions.com follow us on Twitter follow us on Instagram follow us on Facebook page Buy shirts. Buy the shirts. <laughs> and Take pictures of yourself wearing the shirts. Well, post them. <laughs> Someone's wearing, someone took a picture earlier today. I saw, Twitter, yeah, it, like, that cosplaying with me. I was like, well done, well done. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, anything else? Uh, 
anything else? Am I forgetting? I feel like I'm forgetting. We're probably forgetting something, but it's it's fine. Oh, your quote. Oh yeah, that's what we're forgetting. Thank you, thank you. Damn. We were definitely forgetting something. All right, are you ready? Is for it this? doll related? No. You can't tell me. Okay. Also, I can't tell you yet. Okay, you ready? Mm -hmm. This is the really real world. There ain't no coming back. God damn it. I know I gotta, I'm gonna know it when you tell me. This is the really real world, there ain't no coming back. So, I've never seen this movie before. You've never seen this movie, okay. Until last week. And Jack was like... So it's an, it's an older film, like I'm, I'm guessing yes. it came out like when we were younger. Yes. Obviously, all films, unless they come out tomorrow. Well, we were alive when it came when out. We uh, this was like 90s. Yeah, and I'd never seen it. Jack is was it, like, you have to see is it. Is it the last action hero? No, okay. I've seen that. Um, I was thinking about that one the other day. And I'll say it came out in 94. 94, okay. Uh, I did not expect it to be what it was. I don't, okay, can you tell me the genre? Let me give you an idea. Oh, please, because I'm, I'm actually pretty stumped, but I think I'll get it if Black leather. Okay, that doesn't happen. Black eyeliner. Black eyeliner, black leather. Black lipstick. Oh, The Crow. The Crow. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you should have just said just like every Halloween after The Crow for right. 10 years. Yeah, Black Crest Velvet. It was definitely, I tweeted about it. It was definitely the 90s. That's Very, right. yeah. It's the really real world. There ain't no coming back. Like yes. Says. And then funny. I looked at Jack at that moment. I was like, this is the really real world. That's the line. That's the line from this epic film. It's, it's character appropriate, though, because the guy saying it's kind of trash. It's true. So I, I'm gonna give it. I'm, I'm gonna give it a thumbs up. I'm just up. gonna say you should watch it again. I don't want to. I think that you should, <laughs> and I think that I think that you should. Why? <laughs> so I can be depressed at how bad it really is, probably. Well, and Jack and I were talking about it. I was like, I mean, the film, the cinematography, and everything is. I get that it's a cult classic, but. Um, I don't think it's aged well. I used to have the biggest crush. Not. On uh, the guy that played the bad guy, long-haired, oh, top guy money, voiced. top dollar, top, top dollar. dollar. Yeah, um, he that, definitely. That Michael Winkett. It's because name. he walked out of an Anne Rice book. That's Fucking why the best Anne Rice book. <laughs> <laughs> He's like all the best parts of Anne Rice without all the oh, things God. I don't care for. And there's yeah. a lot of things I don't care for in an Anne Rice book. You talk about but things that, that blousy don't age shirt well. again. We're at the '90s. Blousy shirt. Blousy shirt. He's a swashbuckler. He, we, yes. Also has a voice like he's just, he like, just, sounds, has a voice like he drank mercury chloride. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a great voice. Yeah, he does. He does he have a great sexy. voice. Yeah. Uh, mm. And Sarah, I tweeted this as well. She is well on her way to the craft at that point in her life. <laughs> like that's, she's going to be in the craft next. I just know it. She oh my just God. needs one more choker and she'll be on her way. And there she goes. Um. But yeah, I mean, it was. I get it. I get why it's it's a cult film and everything. I just missed it. I missed the timeline for me. Right. It didn't get it you. Like, it didn't get you. Yeah. Because when Jack yeah. was talking about, well, I mean, it's ninety four. Blah blah blah. I was like, you want to know what else came out in ninety four? Forrest Gump. <laughs> like. I hate that fucking. Movie. I know, I but hate that movie so much. That also Pulp Fiction. Also, I like, love that fucking movie. When you go through and you see all the films, there were some really great films that year. And it's the like... The 90s were a really cool time for independent film. They really were. They mm -hmm. really were. So it was just like, this is... Mm. Yeah, mm. I know. I saw it. It's bad. I it's... obsessed over it for about a year. 
yeah. when it came out. And I think I well, really because, loved Brandon Lee. Too. Yeah, well, of course. Beautiful. And it was tragic. The story was tragic. Yeah. But, you know, Jack said it. He's like, at that point, he was the only guy that looked like us. Like, that yeah. we looked at and we were like, he's he the weird. Guy. Like, I'm weird, you know? Yeah. Jack said he almost died as their black. Jack is blonde, by the way. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's kind of like Jack would have looked He and Sarah had the same haircut. <laughs> 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 so, I went. I went as the crow for Halloween. Of course you. Because <laughs> I had. Oh my god! Hair. You should do it again this year. We should do different '90s movies. I don't think I look as good anymore. No, shut up. I, maybe I don't know. But we could do different. I'm too characters. thick now. I'm like too thick. I'm like too dummy thick to but be a like 90s crow. But you're like a modern crow. Because <laughs> think about it now. If they redid crow, they would never do anybody. The crow. If they redid the crow, they would never use anybody that thin. No, no. Now they'd use like the rock. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd watch the imagine? fuck out of it. Yes, I would. Too. Um. Yeah. No. I'm too. I'm too thick. I'm mm -mm. too. I'm built like a linebacker, so I would look like the crow. Who cares? Just, man, that outfit hides nothing. <laughs> I like to wear a girdle. Black shirts. <laughs> it's all black. A lot of duct tape. A lot slimming. of duct tape. I did the costume. It's not as simple as you think. <laughs> <laughs> what would I do? What would I do for the 90s? Oh my god, you could be. Oh my god, what, what? I'm trying to think of a good classic cult. Oh my god, you know what we should do? What, 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 what? Cry baby. Oh my. <laughs> oh fuck. Um, I love that movie. This is probably one that watching back then it'll be, you know, but. Right. All right, well, on that. Sorry, I'm like, no, we're going to have to think about it. Reveries about the 90s. Anyway. So, yeah, thanks again, guys, thanks for again listening. For... And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights on. on.